This is the Spur Leadership Podcast, episode number five. We're joined today with Senator John Cornyn. Senator, thank you so much for being a part of the Spur Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you and I are sitting here today recording 10 days removed from the historic 2016 election. My first question is this, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are a lot of smart people and pundits and people not that smart but do have opinions who uh, have been trying to tell us what happened, but I think... What happened is the sleeping giant known as the American people woke up and they weren't happy. Right, and right. And so they, uh, they said, you know, there's going to be a change here. And uh, there will be. Uh, many of us are trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. But, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, important. Uh, and I'm just glad to have a small part to play in it. Well, I, it's been a fascinating year and a half, really, since the campaign kicked off. And you know, as a pastor, I've been able to kind of stay out of the fray. I, don't, I wouldn't say necessarily above, hopefully above some of the fray, but stay out of the fray. But it was kind of like when everything started coming to a head and we got down to Election Day, I was shocked how anxious people really got about the election. Forget the results, but the election itself. What was it like in D.C. day in and day out as, as the pressure kind of built? Well, it's, you know, the whole process was a little disorienting. Uh, <laughs> I can what, imagine. You know, some people said in a country of 320 plus million people, this is the, this is these are our choices. <laughs> can we can we choose somebody else? And uh, but no, that's not the way the process works. And um, you know, I think what this election showed, perhaps more than any other I can think of, is that um, you know, people are flawed. Mm. Nobody's perfect. Right. There's no perfect candidate. And uh, unfortunately, some of the flaws of these candidates were more obvious and, uh, uh, than others. But, you know, my experience in, uh, in politics has been these are ordinary people who, by and large, believe that uh, they have an opportunity to do extraordinary things in their community, in their state, and, and for the country. And, uh, you know, everybody's a little bit different what their motivation is, but uh, uh, it's to me, the most reassuring thing is that the American people uh, spoke up and said, you know what? Hey, we're in charge. Right. Absolutely. I think one of the things that's been fascinating to watch in the in the wake of the election is the pundits that you mentioned just a second ago and the, the media intelligentsia and all of them literally fumbling all over themselves trying to figure out how wrong they were. Well, I quit making predictions because I'd been wrong at, <laughs> at every turn of the way. Uh, and so and that's what was so surprising. It's, it's pretty it's pretty amazing that all the polling, um, the uh, the media, I mean, all of the typical folks that you would look to to give you some guidance about, you know, what is happening uh, were just wrong. And I think some of that was because people didn't necessarily want to share uh, what they were going to do in the in because of some of the antics of of the of the candidates, they were, may not have been proud necessarily right, to say who right. I'm supporting. But once they got in the voting booth, they figured out that uh, well, here's my my binary choice, and I'm right. gonna I'm gonna cast my vote and shake things up, which they did. Now, do you have any past experience or relationship with President-elect Trump? 
I know him, uh, having met him probably a few times in his office over the years in New York since 2010. Um, usually that was in the context of trying to help some of my colleagues and myself get reelected to right. office, uh, fundraising, which unfortunately is a part of modern day politics. And uh, he's a very amiable guy. He, um, he obviously is pretty smart or he wouldn't be as successful in business as he is. He, he, he's, he's a little bit, you know, he likes to talk about himself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to be the type of person that's going to look in the mirror and say, I'm going to be the next leader of the free world, you can't be a shrinking violet. No. You no. have to be confident, uh, at least, or, and maybe more than that. So uh, he's an he's a interesting guy. Obviously, he's never been in public life before. And as I said, did I mention that our choices were both flawed? Uh, <laughs> I think you did. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, his persona in public, uh, he's quite a showman, you might have noticed. Absolutely. And so, uh, but he's not, his, uh, he's, he's not quite that same way in a private uh, okay. setting. And uh, so my, my hope is that he'll pick good people to help him because he's never been in elected office before. It's a little more complicated than maybe it appears on the outside, uh, dealing with a government uh, as big and comp complicated as ours is. Uh, but he's so far picking some pretty good people, uh, people like Mike Pence, who's a very solid guy, right. current governor of uh, Indiana, uh, 12 years in the, in the Congress, a very solid guy. So my hope is he'll surround himself with, with good people. And frankly, I'm looking forward to trying to help him and help because I don't, not so much because I want to help him as a person, but I want to help the country uh, move in, in, a, in a better direction. People are obviously not happy with the direction the country's in, moving in now. And so I want to try to help turn the ship of state around. I think it's fascinating. You first went to the Senate in 2002, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. You have largely, this, this, is, this may seem like an odd question, but you have seemed from where I sit to be maybe not completely immune, but you don't receive a lot of the anger and the vitriol that a lot of your colleagues do. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting observation. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, some people are just mad at Washington. Right. And with some, some people are just mad. Some people are just <laughs> mad. I've never been an I get angry on occasion, but my wife will tell you that it's pretty rare, and when I do, watch out. But <laughs> I, uh, I've not found that to be the most persuasive right. way to approach things, and uh, perhaps it's because my, uh, my background uh, uh, in the judiciary, mm -hmm. you know, I'm used to being civil and uh, treating people uh, with some dignity, which I think we what all a deserve. novel concept. <laughs> it is. And, and trying to do it on a logical, uh, you know, decide things on a factual and logical basis, which is the antithesis, I guess, of a lot of our politics these days. But so that's sort of my temperament. That's sort of who I am. That's sort of how I, how I uh, came up through the ranks. And uh, uh, I'm happy to uh, disarm angry people by yeah. a little bit of uh, good humor and um, civility if that's possible, so I can, we can actually solve problems. You told me a story right before we started recording. Tell us, tell us that for, for the archives, if you will, about you were being protested, I think, in D.C. at some point. Actually, the, the 
time I was, I've had been protested a number of times, but uh, what I was thinking of, I think it was the Rio Grande Valley, and uh, we were doing an event, and then uh, some people were, had signs and were marching outside, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go out there and talk to them, and <laughs> I, I did, and turned out they weren't really sure why they were protesting. <laughs> Somebody had paid them some money and given, really? them, given them some signs to show up because it was an earned media event. In other words, what they wanted to do is show in the local newscast or on the TV, on the, uh, in the newspaper, uh, that people were protesting, you know, John Cornyn for whatever the reason it was. But these people, they, they, they didn't, didn't have any personal, you know, uh, ax to grind against me. They were just, somebody's paying them to do it. It was pretty funny. So it's like the guys who they paid to stand on the side of the road, like if the furniture store is going out of business, right, they're right. basically doing the same thing for you. It's just another way That's to earn a living. Yeah. That is hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of lot of the uh, lot of the theatrics that you see are you know, are just, just that. that. Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah. So that's it's a pretty. It was pretty funny. I want to go back to something you were mentioning a minute ago about the people that President-elect Trump and others choose to put around themselves when they take office. Because one of the things that, as to use your word, as theatrical as this election cycle was. I think it's easy to forget that the government actually does stuff. I mean, the government actually moves things forward and makes the trains run on time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you got to the Senate in 2002, how long did it take you to kind of settle in and feel really comfortable with moving those levers to make things actually happen versus I'm sworn in, you know, what we see on C-SPAN versus what's actually going on every day? So your question is, how long did it take me to figure it out? Okay, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> well, it took a while. It took a while. I would think uh, you would have to. I'd never, uh, you know, as I said, I'd been a, in, the, in the judiciary for 13 years, both as a trial judge in San Antonio and on the Texas Supreme Court, and then attorney general. And it's, it was fast, it's always been fascinating to me to learn a new job, mm -hmm. and particularly where there's so much at stake. But it did take me a while to sort of figure out what my role was. How do I? How can you be effective? Um, I'm a pretty conservative guy from a as from a political uh, and a philosophical point of view, and there is a war going on in Washington D.C. for the hearts and minds of the American people. And what direction we take the country, whether it's bigger government uh, and everything that comes with it, or it's smaller government and more individual freedom right. and opportunity. But there's some things that the government does that nobody else can do. I'm thinking about things like national security. Sure. Um, obviously, uh, that is, uh, from my perspective, the number one priority. But I realized it took me a while, but I finally figured out that you can't actually govern by s voting no on everything. You right. can probably always get reelected uh, <laughs> by voting no on everything, at least in a conservative place like Texas. But really, that's not the responsible way to do things. And in order to actually move things forward, you can't just do it with people who believe exactly like you do. In other words, with your own political party. Um, you have to actually find a way to build consensus. And actually, the, the way our whole government was uh, created, constructed, it's designed to bring people of different perspectives and points of view together to find out where is that common ground and then to move the country forward on whatever the issue may be. Uh, that's a little bit of a, that's not a popular uh, idea these days because people have this idea that, you know, I want 100% of what I want or I don't want anything at all, right. which 
you get nothing at all when yeah. you say, because nobody gets 100% of what they want unless you're a dictator. And so uh, it's, it's, it's been a, f- a lot of fun and an interesting journey. And um, the longer I've been in the Senate, and the, the, the truth is, um, the longer I've been there, uh, I've learned a few things, and I think I've become better at it. Okay, here's an interesting question then. I think it's interesting. Um, who do you really enjoy just on a personal level from the other side of the aisle? Hmm. Well, this may surprise you. Um, about a year ago, I went to uh, Central America, Mexico City and, and Central America with uh, Tim Kaine, uh, who is, uh, was, ran as uh, Hillary Clinton's vice president, who's a very decent guy. He, uh, we went, when we went to uh, Central America, he actually spent a year, he, he laid out a school a year, went and spent a year at a Jesuit um, um, school uh, teaching children there in, um, uh, I think it was in Honduras, I think it okay. was. And uh, he's fluent in Spanish. You may have seen during the campaign, he gave some speeches in, in Spanish. But he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. Right. Uh, he's a person of faith. Um, he's a person of character. You know, do we agree on politics? Well, no. Uh, there's a lot we disagree on. He's, he's, uh, but that's an example of, um, of the personal connection. And what I've found out working in a place where you have 100 people who get to vote, that relationships are more important than uh, political party. Mm. And uh, you have some very strange, odd couples uh, that work together. Um, one quick story, I, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Enzi, who's a very conservative senator from Wyoming, uh, was working with uh, Teddy Kennedy, the liberal lion of the Senate, sure. who passed away a few years ago. But Teddy Kennedy, of course, came from the, from the fame, famous uh, Kennedy clan. And, uh, but he was, a, he was polar opposite politically. But they worked together in a, on a, one of the most important committees in the Senate. And, I, and they actually produced legislation and worked together, got, got it done. done. Yeah. And I said, well, Mike, how is it that you can do that? He said, it's simple. It's the 80-20 rule. He said, we tried to find the things that we agreed upon, and you know, largely that was the 80%. And uh, the 20% we would never agree on, we left to fight another day. Right. And uh, so I thought, man, that sounds almost too practical to be real. <laughs> um, and I've, I've always found that to be uh, kind of a helpful uh, rule of thumb. That's fascinating. Um, so I want to go back because I think how someone ends up in public service and why they end up in public service to me is more fascinating and I think more instructive than actually being in public service. So talk a little bit about your growing up years and, and how you came to be in this, this role of public servant going all the way back to, you know, being a judge in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Well, my uh, I grew up in a military family. My okay. my dad was in the Air Force. Um, he uh, so we moved around a little bit, but we landed in San Antonio because of the Air Force. And then he, my junior into my junior year in high school, we uh, he was transferred to Japan, which wow. you know how popular that was. I the can end imagine. of my junior year. What started. was his job in the Air Force? Well, it's interesting. He started out in a, as a B-17 pilot in the Army Air Corps in World War II. And uh, after the war, came back and went back to school on the GI Bill mm-hmm. and became a dentist and then an oral pathologist, okay. which is an obscure specialty of dentistry. But um, So he, we, we went back and forth, shuttled back and forth uh, 
from my young, younger years when we were at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., until we came back to Texas. I was born in Texas, of course. I probably shouldn't tell you I ever lived outside of Texas, <laughs> but I just did. Um, and so he would be stationed there at, uh, at Wal- uh, Wilford Hall uh, Hospital in, in, uh, in San Antonio. So that's what he did until uh, he retired uh, in the early 70s and uh, passed away in 1989. But I come from kind of a pretty, you know. Just so was he career Air Force yeah, until yeah. he retired? Okay. Uh, so I'm just kind of a middle-class kid. Uh, at least I was. I'm not, I guess I'm not anymore a kid. <laughs> um, but uh, so I guess I, um, during the, my college years, that was the time of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a different, we tended to regard the military and, 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 and those sorts of things differently. Uh, and it, frankly, looking back on it, it was kind of an embarrassing time in terms of the way we treated people, some sure. of the people who served their country uh, in uniform in places like Vietnam. But I, uh, so I never served in the military, um, and that, that's, I remember the night found out that, uh, uh, I think it was Richard Nixon who uh, did away with the, with the draft. Right. Uh, so I never did serve in the military, but, you know, after being a lawyer for about seven years in San Antonio, I found another way to serve. Uh, it's not quite as dangerous, but as, uh, as uh, Winston Churchill once said, he said, uh, uh, politics can be even more dangerous. He said, in war, you can be killed but once, in politics, many times. <laughs> but, but I, uh, so it was, it was sort of one thing led to another, but um, I ended up uh, running for district judge. My wife's best friend in high school got appointed to the bench. We worked in their campaign, and then they came around uh, two years later and looking for somebody to run, and they said, uh, how about you? I said, well, why are you asking me? He said, well, you have white hair. <laughs> and uh, you look like a judge. And so uh, I did. So believe it or not. What was your legal practice like for those seven years? Well, I, I worked with, a, at that time, a large law firm in San Antonio. I went okay. to law school in San Antonio. And so uh, I was doing a lot of personal injury litigation, prim- okay. primarily on the defense side. Did some medical malpractice, defense mm-hmm. defended doctors and lawyers, believe it or not, in legal malpractice cases which is a lot harder than doctors, <laughs> uh, tried, tried defending a, a lawyer accused of legal malpractice in front of a jury of 12 people. That's, uh, they, they, they were not, uh, they didn't look upon that lawyer with favor, shall think. we say. Um, but it was a great practice but I, um, uh, that I enjoyed a lot. Tried jury cases and uh, you know, liked, liked the back and forth of uh, civilized combat in the courtroom. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then, uh, so then I became a, a, a district judge, and, and uh, you know, I've, I've just really enjoyed everything I've had a chance to do. It's hard to believe I was going to mention. I've been through 17 contested elections. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's hard to believe. I remember when our kids were one and two when, they, uh, when we first ran. And so thank goodness I've been blessed with a saint for a wife. I was, that was my very next question. Kind of like, kinda like, kinda like you. Yeah, well, no <laughs> doubt about it. That's something you and I share in common, marrying way up. Well, you know, it's, there's not many spouses that would be willing to put up with all, no. of, all of the uh, back and forth of modern-day politics. And, and, you know, sometimes these campaigns, you might have noticed, they occasionally get a little nasty. I heard. Which is always harder on, I think, the family sure, members than sure. it is on the candidate because you you kind of know going into it, it's gonna it, it's not gonna always be easy. Right. But your sweet spouse or your kids, uh, they didn't necessarily sign up for this, and they they it it 
it's it's hurt sometimes. Well, and I've had the honor to get to meet your wife Sandy more than once, and she is incredibly, incredibly sweet. But there's no way she's been through how many contested elections? Seventeen. Seventeen, and she's not very, very sweet and very, very tough. She is a tough lady, <laughs> <laughs> and I never forget that. No, I'm sure. I'm, neither do I. I understand that dynamic all too well. All too well. So. Growing up, you saw your dad in the military, and you knew public service was just kind of in the air that you breathed. It really was. It really was. And I, the truth is, I've, what I've learned over the years is that people can serve in a lot of different ways. Sure. Uh, they can serve as a, as a pastor at a church. Uh, you can be a teacher, or you can be a police officer, you can be a judge. I mean, you can be a volunteer in your community and serve people who, um, who need some help. And it's uh, so there are just a lot of different ways to do it, and this this is the way I've uh, found to, to do it. Talk a little bit about how you have helped, because I know in your staff and in your offices, you've always had a number of young people who want to be in public service. And talk about how you cultivate that once they're on your team. What does that look like in the in the senator's office? Well, you get a lot of bright-eyed. Uh, idealistic people who say, you know, I want to get in politics. And my usual response is, that's great, but you need a backup plan. <laughs> because all along the way, uh, in those 17 contested elections, I could have lost. Sure. Um, fortunately, I, I came in second when I ran for AG and then won a runoff. But other than that, it's, as I mean, talk about the hand of Providence. I've actually won all those races. Um, so, Politics is a is a is a tough business sure. uh, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, you're not necessarily the most popular person in town either, um, but it's enormously satisfying. I was out at uh, uh, and gratifying. I was out at uh, the Bush School um, about a week or so ago, Texas A&M, mm -hmm. and uh, talking to a number of those graduate students there. Uh, General Mark Welsh, who's the former Air Force uh, Chief of Staff, is now retired. He's a three-star Air Force General now, is the Dean of the Bush School, and so he asked me if I'd like to talk to a number of the students. And they had a, a, a bust of George Herbert Walker Bush there where he quoted, the quote from him was that public service can be a noble calling. And I thought, you know, nobody personified that better yeah. than George Herbert Walker Bush, and nobody said it better in yeah. my view than that so but it's you know I think uh, if I can bore you with just one other quick story the um, when I got uh, when I started to uh, uh, serve on the Texas Supreme Court and then Attorney General there was a guy named Bob Bullock mm -hmm. you may remember sure crusty recovering alcoholic just a tougher than a boot um, but very savvy and who said in my presence more than one time he said, politics attracts two different kinds of people, people who want to be somebody or people who want to do something. Mm. And I've, I've always, you know, we all want to be somebody, but sure. I've always aspired to be the person who wanted to do something. And recognizing it's not about me. Right. It's what you can do with the, uh, with the position you do, that you hold. Well, and I think that's one of the things that I wanted to, to kind of dig into a little bit because I think one of the things that this that this most recent election highlighted as we said was that need for true public servants and how do you see that playing out 
in, say for example, high school students, college students, and teaching them, showing them that public service is a noble calling, if you do it for the right reasons. Yeah. Well, they need good examples. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, a lot of people think we didn't have the best examples this time. But I would just encourage people not to be cynical. Yeah. You can, I mean, I think cynicism is a, is a dangerous disease uh, because it blinds you to a lot of good. Sure. And you can be skeptical, but don't be cynical. Right. And, uh, and I just, I would just invite them to look around and, and see all the people that are doing the right thing for the right reason and uh, not be turned off by the exceptions they see or the outliers when occasionally people are doing uh, doing something uh, for the wrong reason. And, uh, you know, part of it is just having, having uh, role models, whether it's your mom or your dad or your spouse or your, you know, people you uh, go to church with or people you go to school with. I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful people who serve the community. There's actually one of the interesting things about American history. There's uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote a book, uh, Democracy in America, at the early stages of America's creation, um, traveled around, he's a Frenchman, traveled around and wrote the book about what was unique about American democracy. And he said one of the things that was positively unique was something he called voluntary associations. He said Americans want to join together to do things. Mm. In other countries, government does it all. And there's really not much room for people to voluntarily join together to do wow. things to help the community. But that's something, if you think about it, whether it's the you know Elks Club or the uh, Rotary or sure. just whatever it is, people in America join together to do things to help people. It's, it's really one of the things that makes us unique. But so I think there's wonderful examples all around. It, they're not just people in elected office. They're people that are volunteers. They're people who serve in uh, their family or their community or uh, their church or sure. whatever in a lot of different ways. There's just a lot of really good, honorable, noble people around. Who are some of those people that maybe we don't hear about on a regular basis, maybe especially, you know, that don't make the news, who are not running for president? Mm -hmm. um, who are some of those people that you know that maybe aren't household names, who are honorable people that maybe we could follow on Twitter or say, that's somebody I want to, even, even if it's somebody that you don't agree with politically, they're an honorable person doing what they think is right in politics. Wow, that's a tough one. That's a tough I one. I figured that's a better question than who are some people we should stay away from that we should not follow. <laughs> well, it's... it's um, let me let me think about okay. that one a little bit. You mentioned Tim Kaine as being somebody who yeah. you disagree with politically and maybe philosophically about yeah. the role of government. But he's a good people, he's a good person good who man. believes believes sincerely in what he's doing, and uh, you know there's a lot of a lot of people like that, uh, and there's some who are so bombastic and so difficult to deal with that it's just I just try to stay away from them. Um, but I'll, let me let me think about that a little bit. That's that's a tough question. There are a lot of wonderful people that uh, that I've gotten to know and meet. But I would tell you this, just to quote another sage in politics, uh, Robert C. Byrd. Now Robert C. Byrd was from West Virginia. Right. He was uh, majority leader of the United States Senate, and he was kind of a legend. He went from uh, being a uh, uh, relatively uneducated 
uh, person to becoming a very sophisticated and educated uh, uh, individual. He gave speeches and wrote books on the history of the Senate and, and its ties back to the Roman Senate. He was pretty amazing. But he, he kind of was a guardian of the institution, wasn't he? Very much so, very much so. And he, uh, he also had almost every building in West Virginia named after him, <laughs> building roads and, uh, including bridges. But he, he said when I got there that in the Senate there are no permanent friends and no permanent adversaries. Mm. And I think what he meant by that is we all come from such different uh, places and backgrounds that what you end up doing is joining Common Cause, trying to find that 80%. Uh, even though you disagree on the 20% and fight like cats and dogs over that. So it's kind of an unusual environment. So there's not anybody that I can tell you that, you know, this is a person I like and respect, and we don't disagree on anything. Right, sure. Nobody fits that category. But there's just a lot of really honorable people there who are trying to do the right thing, but they're, you know, they're mere mortals like the rest of us. Sure, sure. <laughs> um I want to go back to your first entering into politics because I think that's one of those things that is obviously a defining moment in your life. Was there any part of you or your wife, Sandy, that caused you to kind of think, you know what, I don't, we're not going to do this? Because just, just the politics game in general and, you know, do we want to put our family through this? Well, you've heard the story about the the frog on the stove, you know, where they turn up the temperature <laughs> gradually and they so gradually that, you know, it's cooked before he knows it. That was kind of me. Because yeah. um, I, I started out in kind of an unconventional way because we uh, elect judges, but judges aren't political in, in a sense, in the sense of what they, the decisions they make are supposed to be based on the law and not based on uh, who the litigants are or, uh, or uh, public opinion per se. So I started that way and sort of moved through the food chain and then sort of became a little more liberated when I became attorney general. But essentially I had 3,500 people who worked at the attorney general's office. We collected child support for 1.2 million kids and then I was the lawyer for the governor and everybody on down. And so, but that was a little bit different. Uh, finally moving into the, uh, uh, into the legislative branch, into uh, uh, the Senate, it's just uh, it's it's the wild wild west in a lot of ways, and so uh, it's been a been a been an evolution right um, in terms of my uh, in terms of my involvement in politics and in uh, it's uh, like I said earlier it's been been a been a wild ride. So speaking of the wild ride, I know that just this week you were back in Washington for Senate leadership elections and were reelected the whip of the Senate, the Republican whip. Um, talk about what does the whip do? Because I, I know the role exists, but I mean, what does that, what does that really mean? Nobody really knows for <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, I'm told it's a, it's a parliamentary uh, office that's carried over from, uh, from English politics. Basically, you're the, the, the vote counter. Okay. What it means as a practical matter is I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues and getting to know them and what their interests are, what their concerns are, what their politics are, to try to figure a way to unify uh, our caucus or conference around a particular legislative agenda. So um, 
sometimes it's analogized to trying to uh, uh, keep uh, frogs in a wheelbarrow. Um, uh, herding cats, you've heard that sure, expression. Sure, but it's I uh, like the frogs in a wheelbarrow, though. I'm going to use that. Uh, it's like, yeah, I think it's frogs in a wheelbarrow while you're r- sprinting down a football field, you know. Covered in to get ice. To the goal line. Yeah, it's <laughs> on ice, exactly. But it's, it's fascinating, uh, and uh, it, the nice thing is it gives me a position at the leadership table on behalf of the 27 million people I'm honored to represent in the Senate, so it's good for the state. It's good for me to help advance uh, Texas priorities because everybody's competing sure. for their interests and their priorities for their state. So in this, in the Senate, we have the leaders for the party. And, of course, when you're the majority, you're the majority leader, which is Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, then the majority whip, which happens to be me. Sometimes it's called the assistant leader. Okay. So it would also be the assistant majority leader, but in the Republican conference, we tend to call it the whip. Um, and then there are a couple of other offices in the in the in the leadership, but you know, we basically work for uh, our colleagues uh, to try to advance a common agenda. Fascinating. A lot of angst, and I think I think a lot of um, noise in the wake of this this most recent election. What would you say to people who are upset, afraid? rioting or any any combination there what would you say to the folks right now about our nation going into a new administration and a, and a new day politically I'd say read some history um, we didn't have social media or the internet um, back when uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams ran for president but boy they said some pretty nasty things about each other and, you know, our country is very resilient. We've been through a lot. Uh, I mentioned my dad was part of the greatest generation in World War II, uh, where a lot of people died trying to defend our way of life against uh, uh, Nazi Germany, Japan, uh, Italy. Um, we had a civil war in this country. 600,000 people died. I'm reading a biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant right mm-hmm. now, which is a fascinating story. but. Uh, 600,000 people died in the American Civil War, and if you were to extrapolate that number to uh, our population today, it'd be like 3 million people dying. It's, so we've been through a lot. This ain't nothing compared to that. <laughs> so I would say don't give up hope, and um, you know, it's, it's all going to turn out okay. Um, there's a lot of challenges we face, both uh, internationally from our, nas- from our security um, America has a unique role in the world, and when we don't lead, other people will fill that vacuum. Uh, we got to find a way to get our economy growing again so people can find jobs and work and provide for their families. We still are the only place in the world that has the, uh, you know, where uh, we don't call it the American dream for nothing. Uh, and thank goodness we live in Texas where the American dream is really alive, and people continue to vote with their feet coming here because this is where this is the land of opportunity. So we need to get that back. Um, and that's that's the task that lies ahead for all of us. Senator, thank you so much. Thanks, Matt.